Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Fashion, fast, furious and throwaway, from the glamour of the Paris catwalk to the scandal of the one-pound bikini, our global obsession with clothes and how we look in them is never-ending. By 2030, experts predict fashion production will be in the region of 102 million tonnes, worth a staggering $3.3 trillion. And there's a price tag for the planet too. In 2015, the carbon emissions, or CO2 equivalent, from the polyester production alone was equivalent to that of the whole of Mexico. You're listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today we are talking about our thirst for new clothes, which is in danger of overwhelming our planet with toxic waste. I'm delighted to introduce my guests. Amy Nguyen is a strategist, researcher and writer focusing on the nexus between sustainable business, fashion, innovation and technology, and the founder of Sustainable and Social, a platform designed to engage millennials in climate change issues. Amy, hello and welcome. And what a fantastic introduction that is. What a, you, just your job and your life sounds so interesting. <laughs> Good morning, Amanda. Thank you so much for that introduction. I think I'm in a very privileged position in the sense that I get to work and wake up to do things I love every day and that hopefully will uh, increase the level of consciousness to solve some of the biggest environmental and social challenges that we are currently facing. Well, we definitely need you and I'm sure that we'll talk more about sustainable and social as we go through. So, so thank you for joining us. And my second guest, George Harding Rolls, is a campaigns advisor at Changing Market Foundation, a group formed to accelerate and scale up solutions to sustainability challenges by leveraging the power of markets. He's the co-author of the Fossil Fashion Reports. And George, huge welcome. And I think I would really like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about the Changing Market Foundation and what you do. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so we are a, a Dutch foundation, although I'm based in London. Um, we've been working since about 2015. Um, we were set up by two long-term campaigners. One of them was um, the CEO of Greenpeace in the 80s, and the other one was his campaigns director. Um, so we really kind of inherited that um, that style of campaigning, that style of um, going quite hard, of exposing and uh, really trying to shift markets through that sort of dynamic. Uh, so the way that we work, it, it's part research, it's part campaigning, it's part policy advocacy. Um, a lot of creative work goes into it as well. Uh, we have this really strong research uh, from people we work with, like sort of Amy, um, who I'm delighted is joining us as well, um, and researchers and investigators around the world. Around the world, and we use that work to, yeah, as you say, shift markets in any way that we can. Um, and where markets can't be shifted organically, um, we do a lot of policy advocacy on top of that as well, um, particularly in the EU. Uh, we also kind of work with um, in partnership with a lot of other NGOs. So it's really important for us to build strong co coalitions across the world. Uh, you know, last year, I think we worked in partners uh, with partners across four or five different continents, um, you know, 10, 10, 20, 30 partners in a year. Um, and we're making sure that we're supporting them, uh, whether that's giving them grants to help them do the work, the really important work that they do, or just supporting each other and, and getting the word out there and, and piling on the pressure. Fascinating. And, and just, I think, so right for our conversation today, because this is so much about the power of advocacy and campaigning to change people's behaviours, isn't it? But also to illuminate discussions. And I have to say, before today's podcast, I hadn't really clicked the connection between the fossil fuel industry 
and and fashion. I had just hadn't, I suppose I just hadn't really made that connection. And a lot of people wouldn't have done. And so so I wonder before, before we kind of get into the meat of this conversation, could you just help us a bit by by framing where that connection is and, and what prompted you to do this report around you know fossil fashion? Yeah, sure. And I think you are not alone in, in not knowing that connection. Um, and it's the same thing that connects climate to plastics as well, because synthetic fibres are a subset of, of plastics, a subset of petrochemicals. Um, and that's really part of the starting point for uh, how we got into this campaign um, was looking at the plastic space. We have a long running campaign called Talking Trash, uh, which looks at the biggest plastic polluters in the world. Um, and what they're saying about how they're tackling plastic waste and actually how they're acting on the ground. Um, but in terms of that climate connection, yeah, it, it's uh, 69% of our clothes are made from synthetic fibres. So that is the likes of uh, polyester, um, acrylic, polyamide, nylon, um, elastane that appear in all of our clothes. We're all all in this podcast wearing synthetic fibres, whether we like it or not. Um, mm-hmm. It is a part of modern life. What is extraordinary is the level that they have grown uh, from uh, about the same production volumes of cotton and polyester, because polyester is the biggest synthetic fiber by far. It's about 80% of all synthetic fibers, 80% of everything we wear. Um, so yeah, from about the year 2000, they had the same production amount. Um, and now it's absolutely skyrocketed to, as I said, it, it representing the majority of all textiles that we wear. Um, and having gone from costing about the same uh, it now costs half as much as cotton does, um, and really in terms of yeah, these these are made from these are made from petrochemicals. They come from oil and gas, um, oil oil and gas that's getting dirtier and dirtier uh, as we move into things like tar sands, into fracked gas, and even into coal. There are plans in China to produce polyester from coal. Um, so yeah, you wear these you wear these lovely soft clothes that. Uh, maybe people don't give a second thought about what they're made from. Maybe they just assume they're made from natural fibres. But the reality is they are made from oil and gas. And because they're made from oil and gas, two things that occur to me for what you've just said. I mean, one is I suppose there's a challenge because we know we're trying to shift the fossil fuel producers in the oil and gas market away from producing those forms of energy for heating, for lighting, for transport. You know, we're all trying to switch to, to, to renewable electricity and renewable sources. So I suppose there's one challenge, which is around that's a potential revenue source. And I guess the other challenge is that they they're therefore relatively cheap to produce as well, because, you know, there's a lot of potential for production and it brings the cost down. And that's been the issue around fast fashion for so many years, hasn't it? So it's been that things are, you know, my one pound bikini example, things are so cheap. So so there's two problems that we've got here, isn't there? One is how we shift the demand so we don't increase fossil fuel production and just allow them to make money out of a different strand of, of capitalism. And the other is about how we actually make sure that people, we, we produce affordable clothes. Um, because, and they're diff- they're, I guess they're different issues, obviously, and they're pulling in different directions. But Amy, you know, lots of the young people that you're talking to, I'm sure, and the, and the activists that you're talking to, they will have been lured or, or, or seduced or even attracted to, you know, in a very simple way, uh, cheaper, what seems to be cheaper, affordable fashionable items that everybody wants to wear so so should we talk about that first because that's actually quite a difficult issue isn't it how you change a market and a perception that a cheap affordable item is is not the one you should be buying no of course Amanda and you're absolutely right I think affordability and price is probably one of the largest barriers to sustainable fashion and inverted commas you know the everyday person cannot absolutely not afford to kit out their wardrobe in Stella McCartney, Gabriella Hearst, all these um, you know 100% 
silk or 100% organic cotton items it's just not possible so I think education is a really big piece um, and sharing with citizens no matter what their age is like there's no such thing as perfection when it comes to these things. George and I always laugh because we're, we're like, oh, no, we're wearing Uniqlo and it's made from <laughs> synthetics, yet we've slated synthetics. So it's recognising that you can never be perfect. And I think we are at a really promising, I would say, tipping point in terms of sustainable behaviour behavior change when it comes to fashion. You know, you spoke about your daughters always shopping on Depop. We see people thrifting a lot and we've seen the rise of rental clothing, whether that is like subscription services or peer-to-peer, which is a fantastic community-led initiative as well to um, reduce our reliance on new clothes as such. So I do think the future looks promising in that regard. Um, and then one other point on this as well is the fact that lots of fast fashion brands and high street brands have adopted this mantra of democratizing fashion however there is an issue with that and they're saying buy these sustainable collections that are affordable however they haven't really factored in the externalities involved in that across the supply chain so when we're looking at the carbon emissions scape one to three and things like that that's not factored in so you can see a Primark Cares t-shirt that's organic cotton, that's in inverted commas, again, affordable, but affordable to who have the farmers that, um, you know, growing the cotton be being paid a fair market price for what they've been growing. Um, so lots to consider there. Yeah, and it would also be yeah, affordable at the other end as well. You know, is it affordable for the uh, waste workers in Ghana, one of the biggest secondhand markets in the world, who are, you know, loaded with piles and piles of cheap clothing that we've all thrown out that we think we're donating, we think we're doing a good thing. And they're having this burgeoning waste crisis, you know, burning landfills in their backyard. We'll talk about that kind of stuff later. But yeah, I think questioning what affordability really means and who is paying the price for our rock bottom prices is so important. Mm, absolutely. And I and I think also there's that terrible dilemma between organic cotton and synthetic, because we're always told that cotton is very water heavy. You know, it takes eight baths of water to make a cotton T-shirt. Synthetics seem like the answer. They seem like, a, you know, the reduction of the footprint because they're not they're not having that impact on, on climate issues such as water and water scarcity. So it's really difficult to unpick your way through this minefield, isn't it? And a high street brand saying this is a sustainable collection. I guess they'd argue that they are raising awareness about sustainability. They're trying to make it affordable for for consumers who can't afford the £10 pair of organic pants. You know, it's do we need at all to give them any credit for that? Or is it just a greenwash? It's just greenwash. It's it's, it's an illusion. And and it's actually a a dangerous placebo, I'd argue, as well. Because if you make people think that they can have a significant effect by buying this H&M Conscious T-shirt... Then, then that's them done for the day. They're like, I've done my eco-conscious thing. I bought this T-shirt. And they're thinking that change is happening when actually the very opposite is true. So this is why greenwashing is, is so pernicious and it's something that we are really fighting hard against in, in every campaign that we work on is because it's not just marketing, it's a placebo. And while you know, while the, the runaway train is, is headed towards the cliff, we're there buying these, these token things and thinking that our only power as a consumer is in what we buy rather than using our voice in calling out the brands and calling out the greenwashing in kind of getting getting more politically involved. Like these are all things that we can do as individuals. And I actually hate the word um, consumer. We had this conversation with um, Lucy Siegel, the Guardian journalist. She, she hates the word consumer as well. And 
I try and catch myself and say at least customer, but if not just people who buy fashion or just, you know, you and I. I do want to talk about the fossil fuel impact, but before we do that, can I just address this issue of elitism? Because you mentioned some very high-end brands there, Amy, when you were talking about, you know, affordable fashion, but actually mm-hmm. even the less high-end brands, you know, even if we're talking about Stripe and Stare and their pants, which were on my Christmas list this year, which is great. <laughs> oh, we're not sponsored by Stripe and Stare, I'm just saying they're fantastic. Um, but, you know, they even they are expensive. And so surely there's a an accusation of arrogance against us, that it's fine for those who can afford to make those choices and buy expensive, truly sustainable fashion, and they have the right to choose. Somebody who's not on that kind of income, are we saying you can't ever be fashionable? You don't have the right to have fashionable clothes because you can't afford to buy a very expensive, sustainable brand or, or you know, one of the kind of niche, small, cooperative producers who produce, you know, fabulously handmade clothes, aren't we just excluding them from the market? And if we are, isn't that incredibly arrogant of us? That's a great question. So I would say going back to what we were talking about with circular business models, I think there is now more access to sustainable fashion items at an affordable price, whether that is through subscription services and things like that. But to be a bit of a hard ass about it, we are in the midst of a climate emergency, you know, this is a divisive climate decade. If we are really to make the difference that we need, I'm sorry, like you are going to have to forego that really nice dress because we don't want to get to 2045 and look back and be like, oh, do you know what? If we hadn't have consumed as much as a total global population, we wouldn't be in this situation where I literally can't even buy a pair of socks now. So that's my thoughts on that. Okay. Uh, and I, I totally agree as well. And also, if you look at the data, we're buying 60% more clothing than 15 years ago. So like 15 years ago, it's not like we're all walking around with not enough clothes to wear. I mean, some people are, and that is a problem and that mm. needs to be addressed separately. And I have no um, no doubt that the affordable clothes that brands like Primark sell are for you know single parent families uh, living living in extreme poverty. That is what they need. But those sort of things need to be addressed in other ways. It's the wider trends where we're all consuming way more than we ever have before. We're actually using our utilization rates is really falling. So some clothes only get worn about six or seven times before they're thrown away. Like address that. And then the other end can also be addressed because we won't be consuming so much. But it does mean if we do things really sustainably is that things will be more expensive, but They'll be commensurately expensive with the true planetary cost of producing them and paying the people who make them a proper salary. And I just want to add on to that and kind of meld it with what we were talking about with greenwashing as well. And you're talking about these conscious collections produced by high street brands. We need to have this conversation about infinite growth. You can't just (laughs) create more conscious collections and more stock keeping units to make a profit and please your shareholders. (laughs) Like that's beats the entire point um so I think that's a really important part of what George spoke about as well like producing so much and they're not there with that conversation we, we obviously talk to quite a few brands in response to the campaigning work we do and we bring it up we say what about degrowth like are you, like why are you not willing to curb your production of synthetic fibers and they say well we can't continue to grow because that's our that's our backbone essentially. So, well, what about continuing to grow? What about that conversation? And the trouble is, they move they move as a pack, um, and 
without one, none of them are willing to really stick their head above the parapet. You know, Patagonia looks like they're sticking their head above the parapet, but they're not really. And they're still producing a lot of their clothes from synthetic fibers. And they're still, you know, making record profits every time they do a Black Friday, do not buy this t-shirt advert. So they're all moving as a herd. And you can't blame them for, for not taking that first move because they would be punished by their shareholders. So what it is about is changing the rules of the game. And this is something I'll come back to again and again. Regulation, regulation, regulation. The fashion industry is one of the most lightly regulated industries in the world, and yet one of the most environmentally damaging emissions between 2 and 8%, one of the biggest producers of, of water pollution. You know, it's it's... It's absolutely mind-boggling that we are regulating transport, we're regulating plastics, we're regulating agriculture, but we're not regulating this behemoth, hugely polluting and hugely um, divisive industry. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a whole debate there to be had about green capitalism and restructuring our economy. And and obviously, as uh, you know, you're at Changing Markets Foundation, that's what you do because you're trying to shift markets and behaviours. But I'm just concerned that the burden of this always falls back on us as the customer, us as the purchaser, us as the individual. And actually, we know that we have to shift that dynamic, don't we? And the burden, and some of this burden needs to be shared by the producers and the manufacturers and the businesses. So it's not just about beating up 17-year-olds and saying you can't go to Primark and get a new dress for Saturday night. It's actually, that's not what we want to do at all. What we want to do is we want to take you with us on this journey, but you need to see a similar amount of activity by the people who are producing those, those goods for you. And we don't want to turn into a state where there's only one store and only one brand and nobody ever buys anything new to wear, but we need to find a middle way of that. So, so, so I guess that's our kind of framing. And that is a really complicated and complex conversation, isn't it? Because, you know, fashion is aspirational, just like any other consumer good, really. And we're driven a lot by, by what happens in social media and in celebrities and the catwalks and the, you know, the designers at the Oscars and all of those things. So it's a very difficult situation to unpick, but, but I guess we'll come back to that, but I wanted to just, just hone in a little bit on some of the things you've just said, George, about the actual pollution and the climate cost of clothing and clothing manufacturer. So tell us a little bit about the kind of fossil fuel bit of this conversation that we started a few moments ago. What, what are we talking about? What does it look like? And what does it actually mean in terms of climate impact? Yeah. Um, so I think if I have it right, it's 14% of um, petrochemicals that are turned into plastics. And then plastics is, is sort of everything from packaging to synthetics. And synthetics is a, is a large part of that. I think packaging is 36% and synthetics is 9 or 10%. Sounds like a small amount, but we're talking about um, billions of barrels of oil, millions of barrels of oil um, a year with a real climate impact. And you said at the beginning um, about the emissions, it's 180 coal-fired power stations worth of emissions a year just for polyester production alone. Um, in terms of oil consumption, 1.35% of, of global oil consumption goes into production of synthetic fibres, um, and that's about the annual oil consumption of the whole of Spain. Um, so these are huge amounts of fossil fuels going into producing what we wear. Um, and I think also you touched on it earlier, but it's something to really emphasize that both in plastics and in synthetic fibers, the fossil fuel industry see these as, as, as you know, their eyes are lighting up. They see these as um, filling up the piggy bank in the future. Like maybe that's a trite way to say it. it's not a piggy bank. It's sort of <laughs> millions of billions. But it's a, new, it's a new form of revenue, isn't it? It's a new revenue yep. stream. And if I am not allowed as a petrochemical producer, I'm not, you know, as BP, I'm no longer allowed to, to make petrol to put in people's cars. I'm going to, I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm not just saying, okay, guys, thanks so much. I'm packing up yeah. my home. I'm going to find a new, a new revenue stream. And, and this is clearly a very, very profitable, potentially never-ending revenue stream. 
Yeah, so um, it's interesting you say BP because their projections are that 95% of future growth in oil demand will come from plastics. So that's packaging and that's synthetic fibres. And yeah, I think people aren't aware of of this kind of climate impact. Um, They aren't aware of how much the fashion industry profits from this because it is the backbone of the fast fashion industry. Have this graph that we comes out again and again and again. Um, and it kind of you imagine like a wedge of cheese. Um, you've got the rind at the bottom, and that is natural fibers uh, from about 1980 to out to projections to 2030. Stays largely stable, grows a little bit, actually wool has decreased over time. Um, and then the rest of the cheese is all polyester. Um, is vast, vast volumes um, out to out to 2030. About um, 73% by 2030 will be synthetic fibres, of which 85% will be polyester. Sorry, not to throw all these data points at you, but they're all going on in my head. Um, and yeah, that is that is the future of the fossil fuel. We call it fossil fashion, but that's the future of the fossil fuel industry. That's where they're going to make their money. Um, it's plastics. It's synthetic fibres, and the fashion industry isn't complaining because, as we said earlier, these are overabundant. They are dirt cheap. Um, they allow the likes of Pretty Little Things to have their annual Pink Friday sale where they sell clothing for like 5p um, or Shein, you know, huge Shein that, that has just ended onto the scene in the last couple of years and is making the likes of Boohoo look like small fry. Um, that is what is fueling them. And that is what is fueling fast fashion. And we say this again and again in our conversations to brands and particularly to policymakers. If you want to tackle fast fashion, you have to tackle synthetic fibers. There's no, there's no two ways about it. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by global law firm Evershed Sutherland. So, so is there anything good about synthetic fibre? I'm thinking about, you know, things like sports kit. The majority of leggings and tops that you use for running and things are made from synthetics. I know some brands are doing it from recycled plastics. You know, you see those leggings that have been made from half a dozen plastic bottles, but on the whole, they're not. They're, they're, they're new synthetic fibres. So is there anything good about them? And if there isn't good about them, what is inherently bad about them in terms of what they do to the climate, apart from the, you know, the emissions of the extraction of the oil and the crude yeah. raw materials? I mean, we can come back to the plastic bottles on in, in particular. Amy's, Amy's smiling at me because that's a particular bugbear. It's, it's a bit of a false solution, but we can we can debunk that later. Um, so, I mean, I think with plastics and with synthetic fibres, Uh, They are really good. They're high performance. They are kind of a miracle material. And that is the reason that they are so pervasive. But it's also the reason that they're so problematic from a waste perspective. The reason we have a plastic crisis is because we're using for everyday disposable single use packaging this like miracle material that will not decompose for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, you know, when they discover that, like, fantastic, let's put Coca-Cola in it. You know, what a, what a ludicrous use of this incredible material that, that is used in the medical industry. It's used in aviation. It, it, it does make um, modern life possible, but there are things we should use it for and there are things that we shouldn't be using it for. So, for example, with synthetic fibres, I mean, there are issues, there are waste issues with microfibres. Again, that's something we can come on to, but like a really high performance sports jacket that you keep for like 25 years and you repair it and it is it performs well in, in wet weather and it keeps you warm. That's a pretty good use of synthetic fibres. It's not disposable fashion, but when we're using like 100% polyester for like a, a trendy dress that you buy and you wear one night and then it, it languishes in the bottom of your cupboard and you never wear it again, you throw it out. Like that's an incredibly bad use of this ama- amazing material. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of good stuff about it. 
But what makes it good also makes it really bad from a climate and from a waste perspective. Yeah, I do want to talk to you about, about the bottles, but I just wanted to pick up on that because I'm feeling that women are getting a bit of a bashing here, um, <laughs> or those who self-identify as women, because actually, look, let's look at football kit. You know, sure. football kit yeah. is made of synthetic material and most football teams, certainly Premier League, first division football teams, I'm on ropey ground here, but I think I know what I'm talking about, it changed their kit virtually every season. Um, so, you know, not only are they getting rid of the stuff and they probably have had given it quite hard wear, but they're encouraging all their fans, which predominantly are boys and young men, not exclusively, of course, but predominantly to purchase replica kit time and time and again and again. again. So it's a really huge issue. It isn't just, yeah. you know, the 17 year old who wants to buy a cheap dress to go out. It's everybody's influenced by this. And we need to change the influencers as well, don't we, from all of those different areas, not just the consumers. So, yeah. Amy, your turn. Come in. No, so Amanda, no, 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 no. I absolutely agree. And it's fantastic what you said. So when we did our research for the Synthetics Anonymous report, we actually analysed so many different clothing categories across men and women to see which categories were most prevalent at the use of synthetics and by far as you can imagine due to their material properties was outerwear so you know it's not just synthetic in the outer bit it's in the lining it's in the piping it's in the padding it's in absolutely everything so those were that was one specific category and then um also, it was dresses because if we think of like taffeta and tulle and, you know, satin or like fake satin. And there were also exa another examples as well, I think, going back to providing a cheaper option is actually knitwear. So lots of these retailers now are kind of creating and trademarking their own versions of um, knitwear. So Marks and Spencers have this thing called like cashmere on, which is actually a fake cashmere made of. 100% synthetic um, so those are some categories which we found kept cropping up time and time again and then of course active wear as well and, and I suppose the, the other problem is it's quite I mean cashmere is quite an expensive brand I mean it lasts if your moths don't get it it lasts you a lifetime but it's so it has quite a large carbon footprint in its own right doesn't it because you know it, it's in that anything that's coming from from a natural source would have a large carbon footprint and there's a carbon footprint to the production element so so if you're going to keep an item for 20 years, and they say the most sustainable fashion is a thing you already have in your wardrobe. If you're going to keep an item for 20 years, it's fine. But, but how do we get that balance between wanting people to have choice and having the flexibility to choose and to change their wardrobes and generating a sustainable way of consuming? And, you know, I think we need to still unpick this business that we need to put more pressure on the market here because, because it's very difficult for us to preach to people and say, you can't, you can't do that. And I know, Amy, you'd say, look, you have to be, you know, you have to be upfront about this and say you've got no choice. But, but the reality is that... <laughs> a bit of a hard ask. Yeah, <laughs> but the love, reality is people won't do that. And, it, you know, I, I, I'm really conscious of not being accused of kind of being arrogant here and saying that you shouldn't do this just because I've chosen to live my life this way you should live your life that way too I mean is there any kind of a middle ground George that we can find that will bring the production manufacturers the market to meet the consumers the purchasers the customers in the middle so to give us the opportunity yeah. to, to, to have fashionable items but but also to have a less disruptive way of producing them yeah so I think um it's not so much about middle ground it's about kind of reimagining the way that the systems works, system works. So 
Uh, I used to work for a nonprofit that specialized in systems thinking for sustainability. And if you think about the fashion sector from a systems perspective, the, the rules of the game are what allow it to function the way that it does at the moment. And the rules of the game are currently made by the fashion brands and the people who buy fashion um, just follow, follow those rules. Um, to reinvent the rules, really, we need legislation and we need to, what is above the companies, what is set, setting the operating landscape these companies are, are um, selling clothes within. Um, it's like the legislative landscape. So, for example, um, extended producer responsibility, which is a, a key piece of legislation, which essentially is like the polluter pays principle um, so that those that put items on the market are actually paying for the end of life management when um, when they get disposed of, when they're donated or when they're thrown away. Um, so that would be the sort of thing that that could help to change the rules of the system, could help to make it easier for people to um, buy sustainable fashion or have a have an idea about what to do with it. It actually would also be kind of make a real letting, level playing field for brands because there are those brands that we all know of who are making a big thing of sustainability, um, but there are shrinkingly few number of them who are actually genuinely committed to sustainability and doing the right thing. And usually they're really small because like it's just not really that possible to do sustainability on a massive, massive scale. So it would help to level the playing field between them, between the likes of um, Stella McCartney, I mean, Stella McCartney being luxury, you can't really compare it to H&M, but, um, you know, the likes of Reformation, for example, who uh, consistently in a lot of the fashion work we've done, um, both in fossil fashion and in dirty fashion, which was a previous campaign we ran on Viscos, um, they come out doing very, very well on their sourcing of responsible Viscos on their policies towards synthetics. So it's really expensive, but how do you level the playing field between that kind of uh, retailer and the likes of H&M or the likes of um, again, Boohoo's probably comparing apples to pears here, but um, yeah, you need to you need to change the rules of the game to make it fair for them. And can I just add one thing? So I think it's also really important. George is talking about like systems thinking, and um, the BOF, the Business of Fashion, raised a really interesting point in their latest state of the fashion report, and it's like if we're going to regulate and move away from synthetic fibers. You know, millions and millions of people are involved in synthetic fibre production in emerging economies. We look at the global south. That is their bread and butter, their livelihoods. If we're going to regulate and move away from that, how are we going to support those workers and suppliers and factories with new revenue streams? How can we support that transition? That's a really important um, factor to consider as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is what, what you do. It's, it's <laughs> picking my metaphor carefully here, but it's a bit like unraveling a jumper, isn't it? We pull on the thread and we get more and more and more and more and more issues that we need to think about. And, and you know, we, it, we need legislation and regulation. We need a change in the financial reward system because let's face it, those brands are making huge profits. Those manufacturers are making huge profits. Those retailers are making huge profits. So we need a change there. So we need to think about rebalancing that in terms of kind of green, the green economics of it. But we also need a change in in people's behavior and people's desire so amy a lot of the work you do you're not sitting there kind of at, at that nexus of you know fashion sustainability and young people's passion about climate change and well, you know, what is the role here for influencers because that's you know a lot of what's driven what people do now has been this this, this access to seeing celebrities and influencers and promotion and advertising. So what, what can we do about changing the message for young people that isn't preachy, or for everybody, but primarily perhaps young people, that isn't preachy, that is still appealing, that doesn't feel like you're saying you can never 
buy a new outfit? I mean, how do we do that? I mean, is there a role for those individuals? I personally feel that influencers with millions and millions of followers do have a responsibility in spreading a message that looks to mindful consumption of items. Um, I think what often happens is influencers who get paid a lot, um, a lot, a lot of money in their contracts with brands to support their sustainable collections and inverted commas may not have the level of technical knowledge that would support informed decision making, or maybe they do have it, but their <laughs> like their own bottom line is more important. Um, I think the message that resonates well is as we've spoken about before, is like recognising as one person, you can only do so much. It's not going to be this overnight transformation. I I can put my hand up and say before um, I did my master's, I was that girl that went to Zara every day on Tottenham Court Road. And I did buy that cute skirt and I did buy that cute dress. But when I went to do my master's focused on sustainable business, I read a, read a changing markets report and dirty viscose, which absolutely changed the game for me. <laughs> and I was in shock. Um, and that was like a really critical turning point for me. So I think the message is incremental change and just staying really up to date on what's going on and also looking for good information and good data the sustainable the myths of sustainable fashion are driven by this awful like contagious bad data you know you speak about like oh is it the third most polluted industry or oh it takes x many tons of water to produce like one cotton t-shirt and like people uh, like catch on to those ideas too much and forget about the bigger picture and what we don't want to do is make people any more anxious about the climate. I mean, climate anxiety, as we know, and we've covered this in the pod and, you know, it comes up a lot in conversations, is a really significant thing. And we're coming through to the end of the pandemic and our younger people have had a really rough deal. Um, you know, they don't want another thing to be anxious about. And if they're suddenly feeling guilt and anxiety about their kind of Saturday shop and their new purchase, then that isn't helpful, is it? So what we need is a kind of, as you say, more information, a nuanced approach, an informed approach, and an easier way to make a responsible choice as well that isn't super, super costly. And lastly, just on that, social media is such a complex topic I think on the one hand it is so fantastic when we think about like sustainable fashion like creating a community where people can learn from each other promoting um truly authentic ethical brands but the other side we see like I call it the weaponization of TikTok where you see like a Mm. Shane Hall which has got like the hashtag has got like nearly like three billion different views that's terrifying so I feel like we almost have this war going on and that is um I mean something that social media platforms really need to think about as well is how they are responsibly monitoring consumption mm. is what I would say mm. and, and George what would be the kind of key takeaways from Changing Markets Foundation and what you what, you know what you think about does the sort of trying to avoid greenwashing and and trying to inform people what is the sort of some of the two or three key messages that you want people to to be thinking about um good question uh so fast fashion is fossil fashion um there's no getting away from that and the two are intrinsic great tagline by the way (laughs) (laughs) um i had to credit my director for coming up with the uh with the campaign name um yeah so fast fashion is fossil fashion and the more people recognize that and start to call it out 
um, and see really the fashion industry as a kind of subset of the fossil fuel industry, um, then the better of an idea um, about what needs to change people will have. Um, so that would be the first one. The second one is is kind of taking care of yourself, and making sure you don't get too um, eco anxious about it. Maybe turning that eco anxiety into uh, eco anger um, and directing that at the brands that you see greenwashing um, or or sort of not not have it being fully across the issue. Um, Amy actually saw the other day. Um, one of Boohoo's sustainability web pages, which is about two sentences long, um, riddled with spelling mistakes. So it's like, direct your anger at them. They don't even care. They can't even proofread their sustainability <laughs> documentation. Um, and then the third one is, I think, recognizing the power of the individual, but recognizing its limitations as well. Um, thinking about it, not just oh, I can't do anything about sustainable fashion because I can't afford to buy sustainable fashion um, or because I don't buy clothes very often or thinking about it as this kind of binary choice between to buy or not buy or buy this clothing and buy the other piece of clothing. If you're interested in fashion, which a lot of people are, there are so many ways to engage in it. There's that positive side of social media where you can get the message out there. There's more advocacy work you could do. There's more, I mean, look, this is a decision that I was I was battling with when I was about 18. Um and I decided that was what I was going to work in. I was going to work in sustainability because I realized there was a limited ability as an individual uh, to, to make that change through my purchasing choices or through the way that I vote, although they're really important, and actually choose to spend eight hours every day working in it. So, you know, that's another question to ask for people to ask themselves if they're feeling fired up, fired up about these issues. I, I'm privileged to work in this kind of world. I've done it for a while, but I'm really, I really do recognize my privilege in working here. Um, but equally, there are lots and lots of opportunities to get involved and to make a living from it. Um, case in point, Amy and I. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, start, you know, I'd say to listeners, start by looking at the, the, the your website and downloading the report, which is free, which makes for stark and slightly depressing reading. Um, and I think being aware, you know, that there is that direct link between fashion and the fossil fuel industry. And it's time that we all recognise that and stood up and called it out because we're very happy to call them out on, on other areas, aren't they? So, so it's been fascinating talking to you both. And I know that we, you know, can have the pleasure of having you back with another guest to talk about you know we've talked about the production end and we've talked about the 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 economics at the beginning of the supply chain and we're going to in our next episode talk about um waste and recycling and what happens to a lot of that fashion when we decide to discard it in whatever form that we do and i could talk about plastic bottles (laughs) and you can talk about plastic bottles which we do need to talk about and some of the myths around that so so huge thank you amy for joining us thank you so much it's been so lovely to speak to you and and to you george as well thank you Thank you. I could talk forever, but this has been great. Yeah, and we will be meeting again soon, and that will be fantastic. So I'd just like to say uh, thanks to my producer, Beth, and to my executive producer, Jim, who edits Planet Pod. Why not subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any good podcast app, and then you will never miss an episode, and you'll be sure to catch the next one when we talk about waste and recycling and the challenges of fashion at the end of its lifetime. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.